So we've been going through Acts. Um, last week we kind of hit a big turning point with the Apostle Paul, where um, when Stephen died, uh, you know, the apostles had been kind of set up in Jerusalem. Things had been going well. Jerusalem was growing. They were kind of getting established and, and kind of undermining the authority of the temple just by doing good things, by kind of taking the temple's place um, in their role amongst the people. And this bothered the temple. So they kind of initiate this huge persecution um, that starts with beating some of the apostles and ends with them stoning Stephen. And at the stoning of Stephen, the church has to scatter. They kind of run from the persecution. And since the persecution is localized in Jerusalem, they uh, run elsewhere. Philip goes up into Samaria, which most of the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, but Philip didn't really know that. So he goes north and preaches to the Samaritans. The, the, they're receptive to the gospel. Um, so the apostles have to kind of come up and see what it looks like when a Samaritan gets saved because they couldn't imagine that. And the Holy Spirit falls on them the same way he had the Jerusalem church. And so they can't deny it. And they accept that the Samaritans have come to faith. And uh, Philip goes down, preaches to an Ethiopian, and he moves on. And then we find out last week that the persecution, so the church goes mobile to escape this kind of center of persecution. And we find last week that the persecution goes mobile. And it chases the church. So Paul gets a letter from the temple at Jerusalem from the Sanhedrin, and he goes chasing the church. Um, he's going to basically wipe out the church. And we found out last week that the church's way of dealing with Paul was to love him. Jesus kind of opens up the heavens and reveals himself to Paul with this uh, Merkava vision. Um, and they uh, and he goes back and Ananias takes him in and then the disciples at Damascus take him in. And they kind of feed him and strengthen him. And then when uh, his life is threatened, they save his life and get him out of there. Barnabas has to kind of lead him by the hand and vouch for him to get him into the church at Jerusalem because they're afraid of him. That church cares for him. And when they find out that the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him for flipping sides, they sneak him out and get him back to his hometown where he can be safe. And so when Paul gets treated this way and becomes a Christian... The persecution dies. Basically, the enemy has become a friend, and now the persecution dies. Then at the end of chapter 9, we kind of flip back to Peter. Like Luke kind of, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and goes back to Peter, just kind of changes perspective for a while. And the end of chapter 9 shows some of Peter's exploits on his travels, which are totally worth reading, but we're not going to go there tonight. Because while Peter is kind of out and about, he's actually on the seashore of the Mediterranean, um, a guy just north of him has a vision, or has an angel come to him, actually. Which, uh, this guy's name is Cornelius. And Cornelius is praying, and an angel shows up to him. And what's kind of ironic is what this angel does, um, because it says Cornelius fell on the ground terrified, like fell on the ground almost in worship. So Cornelius is obviously recognizes this for what it is. This isn't just a dude, this is an angel, and he kind of recognizes something crazy is going on. But if you remember last week when Jesus opens up the heavens and talks to Paul, um, we talked about how the only thing Jesus really gives him other than saying, I'm Jesus, is to say, go into the city and the church will tell you the rest. Like he just kind of dumps Paul onto the church and says, um, go. And the church really kind of does the rest in midwifing Paul into the kingdom. And what we find out tonight in, uh, in this short little story that Bill read 
um, was that the angel kind of does the same thing to Cornelius. Here an angel takes the time to do this miracle and, and reveal himself, whatever dimensional reality had to alter for this angel to make himself visible, he does it. And then all he really says to Cornelius is, go get Peter, he'll tell you the rest. And so he kind of does the exact same thing Jesus does, which is he just dumps him on the church. He says, Cornelius, uh, your alms and your prayers have been heard. Go get Peter. And so Cornelius sends for Peter. He actually sends three guys to go find Peter. And, uh, and actually, let's look at that passage real quick. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. So the angel just hands him off. Really, his job is done. Just getting Cornelius' uh, uh, attention is really seems to be his only intent. And so Cornelius... Let's talk about who this is real quick, because this, this matters a little bit. We don't know a lot about him church history-wise. He doesn't become, like a lot of these guys uh, that get saved in the book of Acts, kind of church history or maybe even mythology, because there's not a lot of history other than what the Catholic Church kind of hangs on to, um, has them as becoming the archbishop of such and such, or like it kind of tracks them for a little ways. We don't really have anything on Cornelius. We don't know what happens to him after this, really. But we do know a few things from the story, a few things we can kind of extrapolate. One is that he's a centurion, and this is kind of a big deal, because a centurion was uh, kind of Roman elite, if you want to call him that. They would have been a captain of anywhere from 200 to 1,000 men um, under their charge, a centurion would have been. And these guys, there were certain things you had to have to be a centurion. Historians tell us you had to be... Uh, literate, which was pretty rare amongst the soldiers. So you had to be able to read orders. So they had to be able to read and write. Um, you had to be connected because you had to offer recommendations from uh, usually senators, usually people high in power who could recommend you for this position. <clears throat> and you had to be a, a really experienced soldier. I've got a quote from one historian, kind of interesting. It says, the centurion... In, an, in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skill and use of sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to ex- execute orders. I'm not sure readier is a word. Readier to execute orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline amongst the soldiers and obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. So this is like the classic officer, right? This is the guy that's always in, you know, in dress clothes and, and he's presentable. This is a, a well-respected Roman guy. And this, at the time, Jerusalem was the sticks, okay? In the Roman Empire, like in most of, all of the stories we tell, Jerusalem is the center of the story. And so we get this, we start getting this picture that everything is about Jerusalem. It's right in the center. But, and I should have put up a map. <laughs> Missed an opportunity. But if Jerusalem is, is here, that we think of as the center, Rome is up here and Jerusalem's like on the edge of the Roman Empire. It's kind of this, this backwoods, you know, place that really didn't play into to Rome much at this time. And so it was kind of a place where they would send 
soldiers, you know, out into the sticks if they want to get him out of the way. But we also know, I don't know if that's what I have next. Yeah, he's in Caesarea. And Caesarea was a major city on the port of the Mediterranean. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, and it was built for the sole purpose of importing and taxing materials on the Mediterranean. They needed a place where they could, because it used to come to like a dozen little small cities, and, and Herod saw an opportunity. If we build a big port city, then we get to tax everything that comes in. And all we have to do is make sure nobody ever comes into any of the other cities. We push them all to Caesarea, and we will be able to tax everybody. And so this is a very lucrative post. Usually if you were in charge of a place like Caesarea, you got to skim all you wanted. And so a guy like Cornelius, who is an officer at a place like Caesarea, uh, because even though Judea was kind of backwards, Caesarea was not. This is the one kind of vital spot in the south, um, money-wise. So he probably had some money. We also know he was generous, that he gave alms. Uh, I love how when the angel talks to Cornelius, he says, your prayers and your alms have been raised to God. Almost like they go together. Almost like the what you say and what you do kind of go together. Kind of like Jesus saying, when you do this to the least of my brethren, you do it unto me. Kind of like your, what you do to the least and your prayers are kind of the same thing. Um, that's just food for thought. We also know that he was kind of a just businessman. This is a big deal because um, when the men came and talked to Peter, they said, um, this guy has a good reputation with all the Jews. And that would have been hard to do back then because the Jews did not like the Romans. They didn't like being kind of under the Roman uh, thumb, if you want to call it that. And a guy like him, a centurion had the right to conscript you into the army, to tax you at will. He could throw you into prison for no reason. Like a Roman soldier had certain rights. Like a Roman soldier, if he was tired of carrying his stuff, he could grab anybody around and make them carry his gear for one mile. When Jesus says when someone uh, tells you to walk with them one mile, I say if you go two, he's talking about a law at the time. A Roman soldier could make you carry his stuff for one mile. Um, and most people measured it out like 4,279 feet, one more, and they hand it back, and that was the law. You didn't have to go any farther. And Jesus was saying, nah, go a second mile. Like, push it past the law and just do good for somebody. Um, so Roman soldiers themselves had rules that could, they could basically just take advantage of people. The centurion, it was almost limitless. They could almost do whatever they wanted. And so this guy had a great deal of power. And what I love about this is he didn't seem to use it because he seemed to uh, treat the the Jews in some way that was fair, some way they understood that he was being fair and was actually uh, a good at his position with them. And the last thing is we know he wasn't a proselyte. He wasn't a converted Jew, even though he's worshiping God. When Peter walks in and he falls down and worships Peter, it's kind of an indication that he wasn't a converted Jew. Because in, in the Roman faith system, this would have been normal. If an angel told you he's sending someone bigger to you, it would have most likely been a demigod. And they were, it was totally okay to worship a demigod in the Roman faith system. And so he would have just assumed when Peter walked in that this is a demigod, a part human, part God. And so his act of worship... Um, kind of shows he didn't have any like Jewish uh, teaching or training. So this is the guy that becomes the very first Gentile to ever get saved. And he's not just 
a Roman, he's like the Roman. He's like your the Roman of Romans. He's a well-respected, high, uh, kind of wealthy. He's he's the Roman. He's the quintessential Roman. And what I love is when he calls for Peter, he's kind of like this perfect engine of reception. Like he's just tuned in. All he says is, um, I think I actually have it. Oh, no, that's not it. I'm cutting ahead. Um, all he says is, God told me to send for you. What do you got? Like is really all he tells Peter is, tell me what you got. Lay it on me because I'm dying to know um, what's happening. And what's interesting is, the point at which the Holy Spirit falls, and this is kind of cool, because Peter comes in and he kind of tells his story a little bit. He's like, you know, this is weird. I had no idea I'd be here. I'm not really supposed to be with Gentiles or come into their house. He kind of gives his background, how he got there. Um, he, then he starts talking about Jesus and he talks about what Jesus did in Jerusalem and kind of the acts he did and the, and the major things that Jesus did. He tells about his death. He tells about his resurrection. And then it says, he, he says this line, up here, uh, to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive the remissions of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell. It was like Cornelius and his family were just waiting for the how. Like just waiting for the, like we're in. How do we get, how do we do this? Like what, what's the vehicle by which we become? And the second Peter says, believe, like, when you believe, you get the remission of sins. It was like, at that moment, they were like, we're in. It was like they were believing as they were hearing almost. And the second he said, belief is kind of the currency of the kingdom. That's kind of how we move here. It was like, immediately, you could almost sense that they, were, they believed it the second he said it, and the Holy Spirit just fell in that instant. And the Holy Spirit validates this. And this is three times we see this happen in the New Testament, or in the book of Acts, and they're... I think they're monumental because it happens on Pentecost when the Jewish church, when the Jerusalem church first kind of gets their start, the Holy Spirit falls. Then the first time it goes into Samaria, kind of a new land, a new understanding, the Holy Spirit does it again. The apostles go up and the Holy Spirit falls and kind of validates that move. And here we are with the very first Gentile to ever get saved, to ever become a Christian. And here's the Holy Spirit again, almost validating that this is a move of God. And, and you see Peter go, can we forbid water to these people? At the end of the thing, he goes, can we forbid them to be baptized? Like the Holy Spirit fell on them like he did us. Almost like it took the Holy Spirit proving to Peter that this is even possible. So this, uh, I do want to go back one second. This is, um, this is a turning point. This is a major thing. And really in the book, too, because the book is going to kind of decidedly turn Gentile from this point on. We're going to start following Paul, and Paul kind of moves the gospel even further into Europe um, and really through the Mediterranean. Um, and, but there's something unique we want to catch. We talked in Stephen's sermon about how Stephen kind of pulled out these patterns from the Old Testament about how Israel just had a habit of missing the people that God would send to them. So God, you know, Joseph, God gives this vision to Joseph uh, about who, who he is and who God is and his brothers missed it and they totally denied him and then they wind up 
coming back to him in Egypt and then they see him and they're like, oh my gosh, you were right all along. They kind of had this eye-opening revelation. Then it happened again with Moses where they missed Moses. Moses shows up and they're like, who are you to judge over us? And they kind of missed him and then he shows back up and starts doing these signs and wonders and the people are like, whoa, apparently you are the guy. And then they do it with almost every prophet. Like they were terrible to the prophets. They abused them. They beat them. They rejected them. And then they go into captivity and they actually, I don't know if you know this, but the, the Old Testament canon, the books that we consider the Old Testament, those weren't chosen until they were in captivity. Um, there were, that was when they kind of canonized the Old Testament, the Jews did. And that happens in captivity, and they include all these prophets that they denied while they were, um, while they were actually free. All these, once they were in captivity, they were like, ah, those guys were actually right. And so... Um, what's interesting is all of these, in all these stories, they miss them on the first go around, but catch them on the second time. And this is kind of important because we're going to see the same thing in Israel. There's a ton of prophecy that says Israel's not done yet. That just like when Joseph's brothers missed him, God wasn't done with them. And when they missed Moses, God wasn't done with them. When they missed the prophets, God wasn't done with them. And so Israel is the same way. Even though they missed Jesus, now not all of them, obviously, the majority of the church at this point is still Jewish. Jewish is a, Israel as a nation basically missed Jesus, but God is not done with them. They're still God's people. And there's a ton of prophecy about how they're going to catch him on the second go around. So it's something we, want, we don't want to miss, that this pattern still holds true for Israel. But... Having said that, for the rest of this book, we are going to go decidedly Gentile. And for a big part of the New Testament, really, most of Paul's letters and things, although they're talking about um, this new concept of, of Gentiles becoming part of the Jewish faith, really, um, most of this stuff is happening in Gentile cities and with Gentile crowds. And so Cornelius sets that tone. He, he is the turning point. He is the hinge by which this whole thing kind of, kind of swings. So it's very historically significant. But there is something... Whoops, did I just hop all over the place? I sure did. There is something I, I want to catch, and that's the second conversion that goes on in this story. And I think this is the one that really um, is important to us uh, at Open Table, and me personally. Um, Peter begins this passage as a Christian. He's an apostle. He's going around doing good. Um, he's spreading the gospel. He's doing signs and wonders. He's helping the poor. But he also starts this passage a racist, if we're honest. He, was, he believed that Jews were the, the master race, ultimately. that They were God's people. They were, and, he, and he starts this passage a legalist, that he believed that his faith system was the only place God ever moves. And so Peter, in the midst of this passage, has, um, oh my gosh, I got to stop pushing that button. Peter, in the midst of this passage, has a conversion. He has this vision, and it's a big white, or not, I I see white, I don't know why I say white, a big sheet, Um, most likely in that day it wouldn't have been white. That's interesting, I'm going to think on that. He sees this big sheet lower from heaven. <laughs> ah, you guys got to experience my ADD right there. That was fun. Um, he sees this big sheet lowered from heaven and it's covered in, um, 
animals that, that Jews weren't allowed to eat, non-kosher animals. And he hears this voice from heaven say, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, well, no, Lord, nothing common or unclean has ever crossed my lips. In other words, I'm kosher. I don't eat that stuff. I never have eaten that stuff. And God says, that which the Lord has cleansed, don't you ever call common or unclean? And Peter doesn't get it. And it happens three times and he still doesn't get it. And, and he wakes up from his, from his kind of dream thing here and, and immediately the Holy Spirit nudges him and says, there's, there's men waiting for you. Go with them. And so he goes and they take him to Cornelius' house and Cornelius is like, I, had, I saw this angel and the angel told me to get you. And obviously that would have been pretty convincing, you know, that, uh, that this guy would have known to even send for you. And Peter's words are, I now know there's no partiality with God. And, and something in him changes and he's kind of altered and blown away by this. And this creates maybe one of the biggest tensions in the entire Christian life, in my opinion. And that is, Peter is hearing God tell him to disobey God. Uh, and you've got to take this with a grain of salt a little bit. Peter could have shown God chapter and verse why he couldn't eat that food. He could have said, God, it says right here that I can't eat that. And God said, that which I've cleansed, don't call common or unclean. So we've got God not contradicting God, but moving in a new direction. And that's what we're going to talk about. Because we're like Peter. We're fascinated with the rules. We're fascinated with the laws. We're fascinated with, I mean, how many of us do that? Is, that, is this or is this not a sin? And we like, we like do that in our churches. Like, tell me you're still going to call this a sin. I've actually had people do this. Like, like, I'm fine coming here. I just want to know that you still agree that this is a sin. You feel that tension? We live in that tension. And here's the thing. If you look at somebody's life and you see them doing something and you wonder, is that a sin? Chances are, yes. That is common and unclean. But that which the Lord has cleansed, don't call common or unclean. We can't look at something and say, well, I know the Bible says that's a sin, but it's not. We can't do that. Peter couldn't look at the Bible and say, it's okay for a Jew to eat this because it's said otherwise. And God never contradicted that. God never said that thing wasn't wrong. What he said was, I've cleansed it. I've cleansed it. And when I cleanse something, it changes. So how do we respond to this? First thing I want to do is recognize that uh, the angels move here to dump Peter on the church, and the angel and the and Jesus is moved to dump Paul on the church in our last chapter. This this move to include the church in these conversions, I don't think that happens because. Uh, Jesus or this angel or whatever or Paul or Cornelius need the church as much as that I think the church needs them. I think the church needs the tension these people. I think Ananias needed to confront Paul. I think he needed to face that tension of I'm going in to witness to this guy that murdered my friend. I think the church at Damascus needed to feel the tension of caring for Paul. 
I think the apostles needed to have Barnabas bring this guy right into the fold. And they needed the tension that came from that. I think Peter needed Cornelius here more than Cornelius needed Peter. Because Cornelius did something to Peter. He changed something in Peter. When Peter sat here with this this guy that when he walked in the room fell down and worshipped. Do you know what that would have been like to a Jew? Like, are you kidding me? This is who I'm here to talk to? Like, he's got it. Like, that's rule number one. Like, that's, that's in the Shema. That's the Lord our God is one. Him alone can we worship. Like, that's rule number one. And this dude just broke it. And this is who I'm here to talk to. And then he gets up just doe-eyed like the, an angel told me to send for you. What do you got? Like this, this guy that just wants to receive the gospel. Peter needed that. He needed to see this genuine, good person whom he had always counted an enemy. And he needed to be confronted with that. The real conversion that takes place in this passage is in Peter's heart. The angel could have told Cornelius about Jesus or sent him to the right scripture or sent anybody to witness to him. The real transformation that takes place here is in Peter. second thing I really want us to catch is that when people come in and they've got habits or hang-ups or the ways they say things or they do things we don't approve of, they vote in ways we don't approve of, they read things we don't approve of. Be real careful before you call that common or unclean. Be real careful. I mean, it's one thing to get caught up in the theology of, does the Bible say that sin? But that's not the real question. Because the chances are the Bible probably does say that sin. It probably does. You just got to make sure that you don't call common or unclean something the Lord has cleansed. That's what I needed out of this passage. Because I wrestle with those things all the time. As a pastor, I, I spend half my time going, what do I do if somebody like this comes and wants to be a part of the church? And what do I do? And what do I do if they say, is this a sin? Because you know. I want to love people. And I want people to feel community. I want people to feel connected. But I also have to be true to the scripture. And so when I read this passage this week, I felt the Lord saying, that which the Lord has cleansed, don't call common or unclean. So I'm going to leave us with that. And we're going to go to the table and remember how those things are cleansed. Those things that are common or unclean. Those things that are sinful. And we can find chapter and verse. We can show God chapter and verse why they're sinful, how they're sinful, why they're forbidden. And I honestly believe if we did that with Jesus, he would show us a broken body and poured out blood and would say, that which the Lord has cleansed, don't call common or unclean. I paid a really high price, a really high price to cleanse those things. I paid a really high price so that I could love people like that.